Well, good morning. Good morning, Baylife. Thank you for that warm welcome. It's been such a treat to be with you uh, this weekend. Uh, as Mark mentioned, I grew up in the Dallas area, and I remember the day that uh, Hurricane Saunders came into Bent Tree as this young youth pastor, and uh, he just had such an extraordinary ministry there. Uh, one quick story. So I remember one, I think it was a Sunday morning, uh, I was listening to Mark speak, and I think I was about 12, 12 or 13, and I was sitting by the window, and I was not particularly interested in what he was saying that day, and so I thought it would be fun to take my watch and catch the light from the window and just aim the glare right on his face while he was teaching, so that shows how far back we go. Uh, Mark was uh, just a great influence on me, such a formative thing to grow up in his youth ministry and, and have my first uh, experiences of really committing my life to Christ and mission trips and all those sorts of things. And then when I graduated high school, I stayed local for college. Mark hired me on uh, to the church staff to work with him, and so he gave me my first opportunity in ministry. And then right about that time, y'all stole him, <laughs> and he moved out here to Tampa. And uh, so the good news is that there's a, a guy waiting in the wings to take his place, Tom Eichem, who I then worked for for a couple years while I was in college. And then y'all stole him too. <laughs> so I, I'm starting to feel like all my mentors are ultimately going to end up in Tampa one way or the other. So I need to alert them, hey, you know, be careful investing in me because that means at some point in the future, you're going to Florida. So uh, in all seriousness, no, though, uh, Mark and Tom are on that just short list for me of life-changing mentors and influencers. And so I'm so grateful for them. They really encouraged me to go on to seminary and get into ministry. And so I owe them a lot. And I am very thankful uh, for what the Lord is doing uh, through them here in your community. And it's been awesome to watch uh, over the last years. And so it's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, so y'all have been in this series, uh, The Best Week Ever. And I've been listening online and enjoying that uh, teaching. It's been so uplifting for me to think through in detail these final days of Jesus' life, this final week. And we've seen that everything he said and did in those final days was just saturated with meaning and significance. And we saw that, that regal entry into Jerusalem uh, with a celebration of, of his entry into that city and followed closely by the dramatic clearing of the temple when he went in there and... and uh, made a big scene. And then uh, we saw him interacting with the religious authorities, uh, fielding questions about loyalty and taxes and Caesar, and Jesus doing his typical judo thing where he doesn't really answer the question, and he's teaching them something in the way that he answers. And then we saw last week this very moving scene where he's having a meal with his friends, and this woman pours out this uh, perfume, this very expensive uh, perfume showing just how all in she was in committing her life to Christ. And so today, we come to this very famous, very iconic scene, the Last Supper. It's bathed in meaning. It is just full of symbolism of who Jesus is, what his mission's all about, and what it means for us today. Let me pray for us before we get into it. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and to worship, to praise you, to hear your word. Lord, we acknowledge that there are many Christians at this very moment around the world who do not enjoy this luxury. They struggle for even the freedom to meet together, and they worry about their safety of being Christians. And so we pray for them 
in this moment. Lord, give them encouragement and strength. And Lord, help us to appreciate the opportunity this is to come together freely and worship you and, and hear your word. And so, Lord, I pray you'd speak now uh, through me. God, let this be nothing of my agenda but only yours. I do ask, Lord, that you would help all of us to hear these words in a fresh way, maybe words that are familiar to us or we've heard before. Let us hear them in a new way uh, today. And so I pray that you would... Um, Give us ears to hear, break down the barriers in our hearts that would prevent us from hearing what you would want us to hear. And we trust you and we love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're in the 14th chapter of Mark, and we're going to start in verse 12. So let's get right into it. It says this, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat? The Passover. So let's stop there for a second. I know that uh, Mark last week kind of gave a little bit of uh, insight into what the Passover was about. And uh, I want to reiterate a little bit of that and expand on it a little bit because the Passover celebration, the context in which Jesus is going to have this conversation with his disciples is so important. It gives so much meaning to what Jesus did. So the story of Passover goes back 15 centuries or so before Jesus' life, when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them uh, through the event that we call the Exodus. And this was God reaching down and saying, I love these people, I'm going to rescue them, and it's the definitive act of salvation in the Old Testament, the Exodus. And so if you're familiar with the story, uh, God is punishing the Egyptians for not letting the Israelites go. There's all these plagues and Pharaoh's uh, heart is hard, he will not let them leave, and then the uh, most serious of the plagues is that all of the firstborn children in Egypt are going to lose their life, uh, but the Israelite kids were spared if they uh, put blood on the doorpost and their home was passed over in that plague, and so that's where it came from. And so you fast forward 15 centuries later to the time of Christ, and the Jews at that time and throughout the centuries, they would celebrate the Passover feast, um, and various feasts in their religious life. Uh, these festivals, these feasts often commemorated something that God had done in their history, a moment of deliverance, a moment of rescue, something powerful he had done. And Passover was one of the three great feasts, one of the three great Jewish festivals. And it was a time when they remembered that moment of deliverance. They remembered, you know, at one time in our past, we were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued us. And so the whole nation would come together and celebrate that uh, part of their history. And so the Passover celebration was really a landmark event in the year uh, of religious life for Jews in that time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, was kind of overlapped with Passover. It was like the next seven days. And that commemorated the fact that as soon as the Israelites had the chance to get out of Egypt, I mean, they just got out of there. They didn't waste any time. They didn't even wait for their bread to rise. So that's why they uh, remembered that. And so the Passover is all about this link to Exodus, to this former time of rescue. And, and the Passover celebration was a massive deal. The population of Jerusalem would double or triple uh, in size. It, it, there were pilgrims uh, coming from all over Israel and the Roman world coming to Jerusalem to celebrate with their families and it was a very chaotic, crowded environment. Uh, I tried to think of an example in my life of something I've experienced that might approximate the environment of Passover. 
And uh, I actually went to seminary in Boston. And so this one summer we went down to the waterfront and were a part of the 4th of July celebration where they do the fireworks and the harbor and that kind of thing. It was really cool. But there were like 250,000 people like right there crammed by the river and just, you know, the subways take forever. I mean, it's just celebratory, chaotic. You know, you got the Boston Police Department on their horses riding around. And, you know, so it's just that kind of environment. Another example would be something I learned the hard way on yesterday, which is getting over the bridge to Clearwater Beach on a Saturday afternoon. Kind of a little bit like that, I imagine. Uh, That's the environment of the Passover celebration. And the Romans are on high alert because here's this festival commemorating a time when God delivered the Israelites from a pagan oppressor. And that's not a good scene if you're the current pagan oppressor, which the Romans were. So they're very nervous. They're out in force. Here's a picture. I want to kind of illustrate this for you. This is a picture. This is a model, actually, of what the Jerusalem temple looked like in the first century. Massive complex. This is where a lot of uh, these events in Jesus' life and, and the early church happened. And so you can imagine this place just crawling with people, all the city streets full. This structure here at the top right with those towers was actually a Roman garrison that they physically attached to the temple so that if the troops needed to ever come out and you know, put down a riot or something, they could. So, I mean, it was, it was a, a highly charged atmosphere. And Jesus and his followers, they come into the city at this time. And they were Jews, And they had celebrated Passover for their whole life, probably. And so it shouldn't strike us as strange that they go into the city and his followers say to Jesus, as we read in verse 12, where should we eat the Passover? Something they'd always done. It was part of their religious life. Let's keep going in verse 22. So they get the the meal ready and they sit down. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, I think when we read these words, especially if you're from a church background, uh, you hear that and you think, that's the communion passage. You know, we think about communion that we celebrate together today, and we just think, yeah, that's what that passage is about, is about the Lord's Supper, communion, and that's true. It is the basis for what we celebrate uh, today in our churches, but there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more symbolism and significance than we remember when we do this. Um, And so this is the key thing. They're sitting down for this Passover meal. Passover, uh, by its very nature, is looking back. It's looking back in history at a time where God rescued the people of Israel. And Jesus now, with his disciples in this meal, he is, in a sense, repurposing Passover. Not to look backwards, but to look forwards. Not to look back at a past instance of rescue, but to point forward to a new rescue that is about to happen. This new covenant in his blood, he said. It's going to be poured out. And so something new is about to happen. But the amazing thing is, it's a new thing that's about to happen. It's a new covenant that's about to be initiated. But it's not a new idea. God had been planning for this for centuries, longer. 
And uh, if you were a Jew at that time, if you were one of Jesus' followers and you knew the scriptures, which would be what we call the Old Testament, you might know what Jeremiah said, uh, the prophet who lived 600 years before Jesus. Look what he wrote. He said this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. See, there's the Passover bit. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. And so God had promised this new covenant for centuries. It had been out there And it would be unlike the previous covenant. It would be totally new. It would not be like the one that came after the Exodus that the Passover was celebrating. It was going to be something brand new, a new covenant, when everyone could know God intimately and could have that relationship with him. The division and the alienation and everything that was indicative of the old covenant that everyone just struggled under for generations, that was all going to be over. And Jesus is telling them at this Last Supper That new covenant's about to happen, and it's going to be ratified in my blood. And all this upcoming stuff that's going to happen, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, that's not an accident. It's not like he lost control. He'd been planning to bring about this new covenant, and he had said many times, I'm going to have to suffer for this to happen. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, three different times, Jesus explicitly says, Guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. My blood is going to have to be shed for this to come true. And this part of it, too, isn't something Jesus was just making up on the fly. This had been predicted. The prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before Jesus' life, when talking about the Messiah, said this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds are we healed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, these prophets, they'd been talking for centuries about this day that would come when this new covenant would come into place and that the Messiah would suffer related to that. And when Jesus spoke about his suffering, people just didn't get it. His disciples, they didn't understand. It did not compute for them because what they wanted What the Jewish people thought the Messiah would be was a conquering hero, a political figure, someone who would literally come in and militarily defeat Caesar and actually sit on a throne that everybody could see. That's who they were expecting. And so even though it had been predicted by the prophets, people weren't expecting that. And his disciples didn't get it. Jesus would tell them over and over, hey, guys, this is about to happen. And they would go, huh? Or they would say, that can't happen. Or they just didn't understand. They wanted him to be a military political figure so badly, they couldn't hear what he was saying about the necessity of his suffering. And he says it in this passage in Mark. You know, this new covenant's going to come about in my blood. I'm going to shed my blood. And they just, it just went past them. They didn't grasp it. 
It's interesting, I was, uh, I was reading an article this last week that talked about these different psychology concepts that affect the way that we hear things and the way that we believe, you know, understand things and why we believe things. And there was this concept, I, I hadn't heard of this before, it's called motivated reasoning. And it's this idea that people are most likely to believe what they want to be true. And I think there was some of that going on with Jesus' followers. They wanted so desperately for him to come into Jerusalem and just take over. And not to stop there, to steamroll on to Rome and take over there too. That's what they wanted. And so they just couldn't grasp his identity, his mission, that he was going to serve, that he was going to suffer, he was going to die. You know, they just didn't get it. And I think we struggle with the same things in a lot of ways in our faith. I think we make Jesus into what we want him to be. And we don't hear things that he's called us to do. You know, we're, we're comfortable with him, you know, being the savior that punches our ticket to heaven or uh, the savior who, you know, kind of helps us get along in life. We're okay with that. But what about the savior who wants to completely rearrange our life? The savior who wants to give us a completely different set of priorities, who challenges our hearts. I think we just let a lot of stuff go by us that Jesus spoke about. And his disciples were in the same position. But to help us remember what he did for us and why he did it, he gave us this beautiful visual illustration, the Lord's Supper, communion. He gave that to us so that we would not just hear what he had said, but we'd have a a tangible thing to do, to remember it, to remember the significance of this moment. And we're going to celebrate communion together here in a little bit. Um, But it would be a mistake to view communion as just a moment to remember the fact that he suffered. Yes, he suffered for us, and we need to remember that. But it's not just that. It's why did he suffer? What was the purpose of his suffering? What was he doing in the shedding of his blood? And we find out in this Mark passage, he was bringing about this new covenant in his blood. So why is that significant? Why does it matter for us today that this new covenant is in place? What does this all mean? It means this. The new covenant is new, it's a covenant, and it's for you. We're going to talk about each of those three things. The new covenant is new, it's a covenant, and it's for you. Let's talk about it's new for a second. I think this gets lost on us because we live in 2017 and we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection, so so much of our faith and our experience as Christians uh, can seem routine or seem like, yeah, that's, all the, that's always been this way. But if you put yourself in the shoes of those followers of Jesus in the first century who were celebrating that Passover, who had come from that religious tradition, it is amazing the stark contrast that this new covenant made with the, with the old covenant. After centuries, generations of Israelites struggling and failing to, to have their faith in God, to follow him, to love him, you know, giving their allegiance to idols and political figures and other things after just centuries of falling and failing and wondering, does God love us? Like, does he care about me? He he seems very distant. This covenant is utterly different from that. It is not dependent on people upholding the law and keeping all of these rules in order to stay in good standing with God. There's nobody in between them and God anymore. There's no priestly class that 
You know, you have to go through. Many people felt so distant from God. But this new covenant cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. It is reliable. And it's, it can't be broken because it is not dependent on our work. It's not dependent on humans upholding the law, upholding our end of it. This covenant is about Christ and his sacrifice and him doing all the work on the cross. It is utterly different from the old covenant, which is what Jeremiah said. It will not be like the old covenant that came after the Exodus. By his wounds we are healed, it says in Isaiah. That's new. That is unlike the old covenant. This one's going to be based on grace. And people will know God personally and trust him. And he's going to forgive sins. Sins are no longer something we have to dig ourselves out of or work to overcome. If we have faith in him, they're forgiven. There's no longer a barrier there. It's about faith in him and just the trust in the sacrifice he made on our behalf. It's new. That is new. Now, we may not have lived in the time before it came about, but it is so different from the experience that people had with God before. And so we have the great privilege of living in this era of the new covenant. The second thing I said is it's a covenant. And uh, I, I don't want to just gloss over that word. That means it's a promise. It is binding. It is an offer of salvation and peace and hope that, that is valid currently. And, and it, it has been for centuries. It doesn't diminish in its validity. It's not only available to some people. It's available to everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of the guilt you feel about your past, the shame you feel, wondering if God cares, and loves, cares about you and loves you. It's valid. It is a covenant, and it is based on God's reliability and the work he did. And so we can grasp onto that and we can, we can place our trust in God because he has promised us something in this new covenant. And so if you've never met Christ, you can grasp onto that covenant for the first time and have confidence in it and discover the hope. And if you have been a believer for a lot of your life or you've drifted away or you, you know, haven't really been investing in your relationship with God, you can grasp onto it again because it's always there and it, the offer uh, is never rescinded from you. It is valid. It's there. It's a promise. It's a covenant. It's binding. It's there. It's offered to us. So it's new, and it's a covenant. And then I think this is the key here. It's for you. It's for you. Now look, it's for everyone. The covenant is offered for everyone. But don't miss this. It's offered to you specifically as well within that. And that's really important to, to acknowledge because I've wrestled with this. I'm sure many of you have wrestled with this as well. I have lived through seasons of life and I still have moments like this where I wonder, you know, how much does God love me? You know, I, I believe the idea that he loves everyone, but how much do I actually believe he loves me specifically? Like knowing me inside and out, in my heart, what I think, those thoughts that I wouldn't want anybody else to know about. God knows those. Those inclinations of your heart that maybe you guilt, feel guilty about or ashamed of. God knows that stuff. And it's like, does he really love me? Knowing me as well as he does? And I think we all feel that. I remember Rich Mullins said it this way. Uh, and this really resonated with me uh, a number of years ago. He said, uh, 
when people say God loves you, I think big deal. He loves everyone. Doesn't make me special. And I think that we sometimes unconsciously can fall into that thinking. And so it's so important to remember that this new covenant, what Jesus came to do is for everyone, yes. It's for all of us, yes. But it's also for each of us. It is for each of us individually. I mean, he loves all of us more than you can imagine. I mean, we can't even articulate it. And he loves us each specifically. This covenant in Jesus' blood, it's for you as much as it is for everyone else. And God knows you inside and out. You know, he, he knows you better than you know yourself. He created you. And he looks at you and he just is crazy about you. He loves you. And that's what this is all about, this new covenant, is he wanted to break down the barriers between us and him. He gave himself for that. But I, I think we often don't live in that joy. We don't experience that in our spiritual lives. And, and I mean those of us that are seasoned Christians. I don't think we live and experience on a day-to-day basis the freedom that we're meant to experience, that, that Christ purchased for us. You know, I mean, think back to these Israelites. For generations, they wondered about where they stood with God and are we doing enough to please him? Does he really love us? They wondered. There was all this anxiety and working hard to impress God. And with Christ, that's all over. That's done with. We don't have to worry about whether he loves us. He definitively proved it on the cross. There's no question about that. The price for our sins, past, present, and future, has been paid in full. And so we can have that unhindered intimacy with God with no guilt, no shame. It's all about our our faith in him, our trust in him. He makes good on his promises. But we do. We live as if we're under the old covenant. I think we do. I think we slip into that mindset. We just kind of, by default, slip into that thinking. As if we are living under the old covenant. We plague ourselves with all this uncertainty that Christ paid the price to free us from. Are we doing enough? Will he forgive me? That's not what the new covenant's about. There's a freedom, my friends, that we are meant to experience and live in. I think sometimes it seems like too good of a deal. You know, it's like, okay, so God just loves me and he just forgives me. That can't be right. I think sometimes the, the magnitude of the gospel just kind of gets lost on us. We think it's, you know, that seems like a little too good to be true. What's the catch? And so we place standards on ourselves that we're not meant to. The culture lies about this. The culture, broadly speaking, teaches a value of you get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. And so we, you know, we kind of overlay that onto our faith a lot of times. And it becomes kind of a karma Christianity. But that's not Christianity. In Christianity, you don't get what you deserve. Christ got what you deserve. That's the key difference. And what a tragic irony that we continue to work to impress God and try to get him to like us when he has said so definitively that he, he loves us. He gave everything he could for us to know that. You know, that's a shocking, counterintuitive thing about the gospel is that our sins are no longer a barrier between us and God if we have faith in Christ, but our goodness can become a barrier. Our good works, our moral efforts, the, the striving to impress God, that can become a barrier 
between us and him. I mean, if you go read the prodigal son parable in the Gospel of Luke, that's kind of what you see. You see this young rebellious son run off and he lives this openly sinful life, comes home and the father welcomes him warmly. I'm so glad you're here. You know, you're my son. I love you. And the older son who stayed around apparently stayed for the wrong reasons because he was trying to impress his dad. You know, I've been here the whole time. I followed all your rules. You've never given me a, a party. And guess who's alienated from the father at the end of that parable? It's the older son, not the younger son. Our goodness, our moral efforts can put a barrier between us and God. And that's kind of a, a shocking truth of the gospel. We've got to remind ourselves that because we will default and shift and drift to trying to earn God's love and his favor. And that's not what the new covenant is all about. He loves us. He proved it. And so our life is just a joyful response to that. Our whole life is a big thank you letter to God for what he's already done. That's what this is all about. So yes, we serve, we give, we sacrifice, we honor the Lord, we follow his rules. We do all those things, but never to earn his love. That is not what it's about. We have his love. And because we have his love, we do those things. We just want to love him back. That's what the new covenant in Jesus' blood is all about. So how do we do this? How do we live life in that freedom, with that new covenant mentality? Well, I think the answer is not in our own strength. You know, if you just try really hard, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this new covenant mentality and I'm going to live in the freedom and believe God loves me. I'm going to try really hard. That'll probably get you to Tuesday, I'm guessing, before you start slipping back into this guilt, shame, you know, does God love me type of thinking. I've been there. So you don't rely on yourself and your own strength. And I, I think the answer and how you do this, how you live this out, is found in what Jesus does right after this scene. If you keep reading in chapter 14, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested. He begins to pray. He's overcome with grief and sorrow, it says, over what's about to happen. You know, not just the physical suffering of the cross, but the separation he's going to feel from God when he absorbs all of God's wrath for all of our sins for all of time onto him like a lightning rod. He is grieved over this, and he's praying you know, in the most intimate of terms, Abba, Father. Abba, the Aramaic equivalent of Dada. And he says, if there's any other way we could do this, that'd be great. But not my will, yours. And he entrusts himself to God. He puts his life in God's hands. And that's what we do to experience the new covenant is, is we just say, Lord, I want to live in the freedom that you've, you've provided for me. I want to experience that joy. I don't want to fall into these other mentalities that are something else apart from what you've done. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be working to earn your love. Help me know that you love me. Remind me of that. And you just trust him. And you give yourself wholeheartedly to him. And you remember that he keeps his promises and you rely on him, and you, you fully step into that intimate relationship with him that he's offered. And you just ask him to change you from the inside out. It's not about you working to earn his love, and it's even not about you working to maintain the right mentality. It's about trusting him and giving yourself wholeheartedly to him. 
and asking him, Lord, just change me. Change me from the inside out. We don't seek God because he gives us what we desire. We seek God because he is what we desire. And when he becomes the thing you desire most and you draw close to him, he is going to begin to change you by his Holy Spirit from the inside out. And this new covenant thinking, the truth of the gospel, you're going to find that playing out in your life and in your experience. Not because you've worked hard at it, but because you've trusted God and he's doing his work in you. That's the new covenant. It's responding to God's love with no guilt, no shame, and no effort to earn his love and experiencing that joy of that unbroken relationship and the hope of eternal life. That's what it's all about. I want to wrap up with a few verses from the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to dive into it in detail. I just want to read them. Uh, But the reason I want to read them is that Hebrews was written to Christians who were from a Jewish background. And so this was written for people who were steeped in that old, Old Covenant thinking. And the writer is trying to put into context what Jesus means and the relationship of the two covenants and why they're different. And I think he summed it up better than I could. So we'll start in verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Okay, time out. You're like, what are we talking about here with goats and bulls and heifers? Uh, So this is uh, a snapshot of kind of what some of the religious life looked like in the Old Covenant. You were making sacrifices. You were dealing with your sins by all of these offerings and those sorts of things. So he's saying, like, that, that is kind of how it used to be. Verse 14. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? He's talking about sins there. So that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ came to set us free. That's what this means, to set us free. He gave his life the highest cost. He paid it to give us freedom to rid us from the worry about our sin and doubts about his love so that we can know him and love him and serve him unreservedly. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to meditate on what you've done for us, Lord, in your sacrifice and the significance of this new covenant, Lord, that it's, it's something new that you did. It was an avenue that you opened up to, to bring us as close as possible to you, where we could have this intimate relationship. Lord, and it's a covenant. It's something that is based on your character. You are reliable. You keep your promises. And so we can grab hold of that and have confidence. And Lord, help us always to remember that it's for us. You did this for us because of your great, immeasurable love. You love us inside and out. You know us. Help us to remember that. Help us not to lose sight of that in the busyness of our life and the stress. 
Help us, Lord, in the same way that you did in the garden, just fully entrust ourselves to you. Help us to just give ourselves over and and make our life just a big thank you note for the love that you have shown to us. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.